I noticed there's a little clock here that wasn't here the last time I preached. <laughs> I want to just put my notes right over it. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we, we are grateful for all we've already experienced this morning. And we are amazed that you have more in store for us through the ministry of your word. So come and speak to us. Transform us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the message that I'm bringing to you this morning is from the text that Arnaldo just read. Uh, in your hearing, uh, those of you who were at Thrive, uh, the Thrive Conference a couple of weeks ago will note a distinct familiarity uh, between today's message and that message, and there's for the simple reason that it's almost exactly the same message uh, that is just being re-preached here, although there are aspects of it that uh, I felt that this was a message I wanted to bring here to the Risen Hope family with particular application to our circumstances and to our, to our life together. You know, I've been thinking a lot about forgiveness. Forgiveness is really a sweet thing. Um, experiencing pardon and mercy is something that affects us deeply. I remember one of my early in life experiences of Forgiveness happened way back in the second grade, which happens to be when my basketball career began. Uh, I played a lot of basketball in my uh, day, although it's been a long time since I last played basketball. Uh, but when I was in my prime, I, I, I could shoot fairly well and did, uh, did okay in basketball. And my, my practice went all the way back to second grade, one day at school, I was challenged to a shooting contest. Only this particular contest was to take place in the little boys' room, uh, and the basketball was to be shot at, we'll just say, one of the um, less sanitary fixtures uh, in the little boys' room. And being the good shot that I was, I was the one who won the game of horse, that particular afternoon uh, and uh, walked out of the little boy's room triumphant, walked into my classroom, uh, and a few minutes later, uh, the little boy whose basketball it was walked into the classroom with this uh, just unpleasant basketball in his hands, told my teacher who had shot it into the fixture, uh, and I promptly received a detention for this. You need to understand, this was this was in Japan when uh, my parents were missionaries there and we were commuting to a missionary school and, and they took these kind of things seriously. Uh, for, uh, so I got a detention for this and, and I knew right then, you know, with, with my mom and dad, I knew that was trouble all on its own. But what I had forgotten and just didn't, hadn't clicked with me was that, that was the particular day when my family had to travel a couple of hours into Tokyo 
in order to go to a hospital and get some shots and some checkups and all the rest. This was like a once or twice a year deal, big deal, major travel. If you've ever driven into Tokyo, which I doubt any of you have, just take my word for it. If you've ever driven into Tokyo, you know it's no fun. It's about as tough of a commute as you can possibly have. So that was to take place right after school. My parents were to pick me up at school, drive right into Tokyo, get this done. Well, detention made us late. Detention meant that we were going to be late for the doctor's appointment, and everything was then out of whack. My father was not pleased. My my father, uh, I, well, I just knew I was in trouble. I knew that I deserved to be in trouble. After all, I had disrespected other people's property, and I had made my family late. And if you knew the rest of the story of my early childhood, you knew that I was in trouble all the time. And so the reality was that discipline was, seemed very sure. And so I'm sitting behind my dad as he's driving, and I'm trying like crazy to avoid looking in the rearview mirror because I, I knew his eyes would be looking in that mirror back at me. And it was just this, it was two hours into Tokyo, a couple of hours at the doctor's, two hours going home from Tokyo, in which and during which I lived in sheer terror. My, 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 you got to understand, my dad and mom, they did affection and love wonderfully, but, but dad believed in discipline, and, and he did believe that there were times when there needed to be a little bit of pain applied in order to make a point, and, and so I was expecting this all the way home, and, and I got out of the car, and I walked silently into the room, which probably there was such a room in your growing up years. I walked silently into the room where judgment usually happened. And I, I just quietly walked in and literally bent over, ready for discipline and judgment to happen, and it never happened. And instead of discipline, instead of judgment, there was a hug. And there was my father's words, Tim, I'm not going to discipline you for this. You could have told me that four hours ago, Dad, but, <laughs> but in that moment... I experienced pardon. I experienced mercy, forgiveness. Oh, it's a sweet thing. You've experienced it, right? At some point or other in your life. Some debt that was canceled, some wrong that was pardoned, some grave infidelity that was met with mercy. A relationship that you messed up. And yet somebody else forgave. Forgiveness is a wonderful thing. My friends here this afternoon, here's what I want you to hear from God's Word today. Guilty as you and I are. Guilty as you and I are. We can stand before God as if we have never done anything wrong and have only done everything right and all we need to do is believe in Jesus. Guilty as you and I are, we can stand 
before God, before a holy God, before a just God, we can stand before God as if we have never done anything wrong and have only and always done everything right. And all we need to do, all we need to do is believe in Jesus. That's the message of Romans chapter 3. Let's explore it together. We're, we're talking this morning about justification, which is acceptance and forgiveness with God, justification by faith alone because of Christ alone. And there's going to be three main points here today. Justification, why we all need it, what it is, and how it matters. So justification, why we all need it. Why do we need to be justified? Well, Paul gives us in Romans 1 through 3, three basic answers to that. One, because we are inexcusably bad. Two, because God is justifiably mad. And three, because there's nothing you or I can do about the first two. We need to be justified because we are inexcusably bad. God is justifiably mad. And there's nothing you and I can do about those two things. Let's let's look at the text together. First of all, we are all inexcusably bad. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Every single one of us has sinned. The, The point of Romans 1 through 3... Primarily is this, a long indictment. Paul goes out of his way to indict everybody. There is no one good, not even one. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No matter who you are, no matter what the color of your skin, no matter what your culture, no matter what your age, every one of us has ignored at some point or another the law of God, has disobeyed the law of God, whether it was just ignoring our conscience or whether it was ignoring God's Word. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 2 makes it clear that we have done so in such a way that we are without excuse. One of the things I love about the Bible One of the reasons I believe the Bible to be the Word of God is because of its exquisite accuracy in diagnosing human beings. When you read the Bible, you find out that there are two major things true about us as humans. Number one, we have great dignity. And then number two, we have great depravity. We have great dignity because we're made in the image of God. Every single one in this room has been made in the image of God. That means you bear in your person and in your personality a reflection of the majesty and the dignity and the morality and the goodness and the creativity of God. We are all made in the image of God. We We are majestic creatures. Nothing else like us on planet Earth. Nothing else. In fact, the Bible's teaching us that at the end of the day, when all is said and done, we're going to be higher and more majestic than the angels. 
So we have great dignity, but simultaneously, because of our fall into sin, we have great depravity as well. We are sinners. We are guilty. And, and we are so guilty that we find it almost impossible, isn't this true, not to sin. Sin, sin comes easy to us. And, and the harder we try not to sin... the more easy it feels to sin. The, or a different way of putting it, the, the harder we try to be good, the more we realize how hard it is to be good. Being good is really tough. What, what the Bible says about depravity is, is true. Somebody has said that to really understand how bad we are, how, how bad our condition is, we need to understand that we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. The fact that you and I have sinned didn't make us sinners. We were already sinners. We sin because we're sinners. We're born that way. It's the easiest doctrine in the whole Bible to prove empirically, verifiably, the depravity of the human heart. All you have to do is look in the mirror, or all you have to do is be a parent. I have six children. Some of you have heard me say this. I have 11 grandchildren. The 11th is on the way. I'm here to tell you, human nature is depraved. If you're doubting me, I'm, I'm going to, a little, little uh, courtroom drama here. All of you who are parents, I, I got three yes and no questions for you, okay? Just answer yes or no, all right? Here, question number one. Have your children ever done anything wrong? Okay. Number two. Did you have to teach your children to do something wrong? No. Question number three. What have you had to do to try to teach your children to do the right things? What level of teaching and discipline and reminders and post-it notes slammed on their foreheads and flattery and bribery and what has it taken to get your kids to do the right things. Think about it. You know, I know some people don't like this doctrine. They think it's pessimistic. They, we're just being real here, folks. This is the human condition. Take a little baby, let it just do its own thing, and you're not going to like the result. And it's the same for all of us. We are, the Bible teaches, inexcusably bad. We can't just say, well, if I'm just born this way, it must be, yeah, it's not my fault. No, you know full well how many hundreds of times you have known the right thing to do and you chose to do the other. Now, don't, don't start giving me this. Well, it's not my fault, born this way. Just, no, we choose it. 
we are inexcusably bad. Which leads us to truth number two. This is why we need justification. God is justifiably mad. God is angry with sin. Just look back at Romans chapter 1 real quick and and verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul says God is angry. God is experiencing wrath. And notice it's present tense. The wrath of God is revealed. doesn't say it one day will be revealed. It is revealed. It's going on right now. You say, well, how in the world do we see the wrath of God revealed now? I don't see it. You think, well, yes, you do. You just don't realize it. Look at Romans 1 again. And, and down in verse 21. For although they knew God, this is talking about human beings, all of us. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul says human beings suppress the truth. We know the truth about God. All you have to do is look at creation and you can learn all about the attributes and the character of God. All you have to do is listen to your own conscience. And the moral law of God is written on your heart. It's written into your conscience. You know right and wrong. I know right and wrong. And yet we suppress it. We don't do it. And what happens when people collect individually and then collectively suppress the truth? Well, look at verse 24. Therefore, because all of this has happened, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies in themselves. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then he goes on to talk about various sexual sins. And Paul says, because people suppress the truth, God gives them up. His wrath is, this is how God shows he's angry with sin. He says, okay, you want it? You can have it. You don't want me? Then let me show you what life looks like without me. You don't want my restraints? You don't want my constraints? You don't want my law? Let me show you what your life and culture and society look like without my law. And it gets pretty ugly. This is the wrath of God that's poured out. And so there are sexual sins of a variety of sorts. And then you go down to verse 28. And you read, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are, full, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. 
Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice these things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Oh, you need to follow this, my friends. We are inexcusably bad and God is justifiably mad. And the early expression of his wrath has been a giving over of human beings to their sin. Removing his restraint. And this stuff happens. When people willfully sin and suppress the truth, things turn dishonorable and debased very quickly. When you see a culture that gives itself to all kinds of sexual sin, when you see a culture that becomes marked by dishonesty and envy and greed and gossip and arrogance and slander and violence and ruthlessness and faithlessness, when you see a culture that ignores and disdains and hates God, when you see a culture that approves of sin, calling evil good and good evil, you can know that that culture is under the wrath of God. I'll leave it to you to decide where our culture is right now. But I suspect, I suspect that God is saying to us, repent, repent. Because individually and as a culture, we have suppressed the truth to a point where we have now gotten in many ways, in many levels, in many places, we have gotten to a place where what is evil is called good and what is good is called evil. This is the present wrath of God. But there is a future wrath as well. This is, this is what is now, but what is to come is even worse. And we read about it in chapter 2 where we read that because of human impenitence or refusal to believe and repent of sin, we are storing up wrath for the day of judgment. There's a day coming. There's a day coming Truly judgment day. There's a day coming when we'll give an account for it all. There's a day coming when those who have not repented, those who have not been justified, those who have not been forgiven will face the wrath of an angry God. They will face, and, and please, when you hear that, don't think in terms of human wrath and your experience of wrath. God's wrath is not like ours. I'm very glad for that. God's wrath, our wrath is, is, is impulsive, it's erratic, it's inconsistent, it, it's unjust, it is cruel, it is, it is, you know, it's one, you know how it is, right? One day you're angry at something, the next day it doesn't even bother you. you know, we just have, we're inconsistent emotional beings. God's wrath is a just wrath. God's wrath is a perfect wrath. He never gets angrier at a sin today than he was yesterday. It's, you know, he, he is always measured and proportionate and perfect and just in the exercise of his wrath. But it is still wrath. It is still wrath. Why do we need justification? 
because we are inexcusably bad and God is justifiably mad. And my friends here today, there is nothing you and I can do about it. Go ahead, try from this point on to live a perfect life. Go ahead, get it perfect for the rest of your life. You still get your past life to deal with. You can't fix it. I just noticed this clock isn't working. (laughs) It stopped 20 minutes ago. (laughs) There's nothing we can do to fix it. The thing about guilt is you can't unguilt it. You can't atone for it can't make believe it's not there. This is why you and I need to be justified by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. So so what is justification? Justification or to be justified is is to be considered, to be reckoned, to be declared just or righteous in the sight of God. Even though we are guilty, even though we are not righteous in our actual selves and behavior, we are counted as righteous. We are considered just and perfect and acceptable in the sight of God. Now that's amazing. But that's what this text is about. Look at it. Chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 26, it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Chapter 4 and verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Here is the gospel. Here is the Christian faith. Here is the heart and the soul of it all. Believe in Jesus and you will be counted as righteous. Believe in Jesus and even though you are, what's Paul's word in verse 5? The ungodly, even though you have been and still are guilty, God will justify you. You say, how is that possible? That sounds like that must be some kind of judicial trickery of some sort. What, what's God up to there? That, something doesn't feel right to that. How can God justify the ungodly, the wicked? How can he treat the unrighteous as if they are righteous and stay righteous in the process? That's a tough question. But it's the heart of the gospel. You see, the answer is in in verse 23, or verse 24, we are justified by His grace as a gift. Here's the answer. 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. What does all that mean? God justifies us as a gift, freely, by faith alone, based on the fact that He has offered His Son, Jesus Christ, as an atoning sacrifice. That's what the word propitiation means. It actually literally means a sacrifice to take away wrath, to appease. I, I think I've said this in this context before, but I'll say it again. If, if, if you get me mad and you want to appease me, just leave a lemon meringue pie on my doorstep. That will, that will take away my wrath. That will appease. That will atone. A, a propitiation or a propitiatory sacrifice is a sacrifice that takes away wrath, that satisfies justice. And God says, I give you my justifying grace. How? On the basis of the fact that my son took the punishment for your sin. My son removed my wrath. When I looked on the cross and saw my son bleeding there and dying there, he was your redemption. His death was your death. His blood was the atonement for your sins. So that now, you don't have to die under my wrath. You are considered righteous. I treat you as if you've never done anything wrong because I treated him like he had done everything wrong. He took your place. He took your place. And then... Because not only do we need our sins punished, our wrongdoing, our unrighteousness atoned for, that kind of gets us out of hell, but we also need a passport into heaven. We also need a righteous record in the sight of God. We also need to be able to say to God, I have a righteous account. You say, how do you get that? Well, we get that through the righteousness of Christ. So if we look at Romans chapter 5, quickly, Romans chapter 5 and verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's Jesus obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What's going on here? The obedience of Christ, the perfect righteousness of Christ, the perfect record of Christ is counted as your righteousness and your obedience when you come to faith in Christ. And so we read these wonderful words in Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake. 
I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So God treats us as if we've never done anything wrong because He punished Jesus in our place. God accepts us as if we have ever and only and always done everything right because Jesus only and always did everything right. And his righteousness is counted as ours. John Bunyan, the author of The Pilgrim's Progress, puts it like this. Indeed, this is one of the greatest mysteries in the world Namely, that a righteousness that resides with a person in heaven should justify me, a sinner on earth. And it is by faith alone. Nothing you can do can add to it. Your works can't atone for your own. Your good works can't atone for your bad works. I mean, there's nothing we can do. Jesus has done it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him, I owe. Jesus provided the righteousness that I need in order to get into glory. And all I need to do is believe. Meaning by that, I need to obviously repent of my sin in unbelief. I, I need to turn away from my sin and turn in faith, in trust, to Christ. I need to believe. You can't, this, this doesn't happen by osmosis, folks. It doesn't just happen to you somehow magically. No, you need to believe in Jesus. So I ask you, do you believe in Jesus? If you don't, you're still under the wrath of God and it's only going to get worse. But if you do, you never have to fear the wrath of God again. Do you believe? Do you believe? Have you, have you said, I need a Savior? I hear, I hear what you're saying, Tim. I am. I see it. I sense it. I feel it. I am inexcusably bad. And God has a right to be mad. God has a right to be angry with me. How many times I've done the wrong things, knowingly, willfully, willingly done the wrong things, defying God who was, I know, in my conscience telling me to go in a different direction. How many times I've done that? I am inexcusably bad. He is justifiably mad. Where is their hope? It is in Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. He is, the, he is just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. So, how does it matter? Well, I think escaping hell and going to heaven is probably, in one sense, all the answer you need. Uh, but there's more. Here's one way it matters. This is the secret to joy. This is where joy begins. 
Notice in chapter 4 and verse 7, Paul says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed or blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That word blessed means happy, full of joy. You want joy? Taste forgiveness. You want joy? You want blessedness? You want your life to be full? You want your life to have meaning? You want your life to be full of delight and pleasure? And I'm not talking about all your troubles going away. Your troubles are going to stay. But your guilt will go away. And your shame will go away. And your fear of hell will go away. And your fear of the wrath of God will go away. And you will be blessed because the Lord no longer counts your sins against you. Oh, this is the secret to joy. Let's be happy Christians, all right? We've got every reason in the world to be happy people. Because no matter what else goes on in our life, the Lord is not counting our sins against us. In the Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan carried this big burden on his back. Those of you who have read it, uh, you'll remember that. If you haven't read it, it's a wonderful book other than the Bible. Certainly one of the top five best books of all time. He's got this heavy burden of, of guilt and sin on his back, and he's carrying it along. Finally, he comes to the foot of the cross, and he looks up. And in seeing Christ and in realizing what Jesus did for him on the cross, all of a sudden the burden loosens off his back. And it rolls down the hill and it rolls into an empty tomb. And John Bunyan, the old Puritan, said that Christian the pilgrim danced for joy. You probably didn't realize the Puritans loved to dance. They were happy Christians. You know why they were happy Christians? I mean, there were some wacko Puritans. But the good ones were happy Christians. You know why? Because they understood justification by grace and faith alone. They, they knew that all it takes is a genuine faith at looking to the cross. And the burden rose off. The guilt is gone. Do you believe? Not enough to be passive about this. Do you believe in Jesus? Don't leave here. Don't leave here today still carrying the burden of guilt on your back. There, there is freedom. There is forgiveness. There is justification. You can walk out of here as if you have never done anything wrong and only and always done everything right in the sight of God just by believing in Jesus. You can go home considered perfect by God and destined for heaven just by believing in Jesus. So will you believe in your own heart right now? Just say, say to God, oh Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I desperately need your mercy. Thank you for sending your son to die for my sin. I believe in him. I commit my sins to his cross and my salvation to his care. And if you mean that in your heart, you'll walk out a redeemed sinner 
accepted by God. And folks, why does this matter? Well, it matters in a way that is important to us in our moment and culture and time. This doctrine of justification is the great leveler. It's the great equalizer. Because, because what it means is that every one of us, regardless of our age, the color of our skin, our class, our culture, every one of us is equally, inexcusably bad. Our sins may be different, but we are equally, inexcusably bad. And every one of us deserves the justified wrath of God. We all stand on level ground, in guilt under the wrath of God. Nobody's superior. Nobody's above. Nobody's better. All guilty. All deserving the wrath of God. And every one of us has only one hope, and it's Jesus. We all have the same guilt, before uh, the same holy, angry God, and we all need the same Savior, and it is all by faith alone. So your works don't contribute to it, your, your privilege doesn't contribute to it, your merit doesn't contribute, nothing, nothing about you or me contributes to it. It is all grace, all grace, all grace, free gift to all who will receive it. And there we stand on level ground at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. And there, racism should die. There, bigotry and prejudice should die. Because we're all in the guilt thing together. And by faith, all in the grace thing together. And nobody's better than anybody. It's all Christ. Shai Lin, some of you know him, rapper, pastor of a church in Philadelphia. Uh, Shai Lin says the doctrine of justification is the key to destroy racism. This truth is the one smooth stone that can slay the Goliath. We all stand on equal ground. The question is whether we will believe it and live in the light of it. That's the question. Oh, that we will, by the grace of God. Here we stand. We have nowhere else to stand. Nowhere else. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. So, Here's the secret to joy. Blessed is the man whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Here is the key that unlocks a door of hope to racial healing and harmony and love within the body of Christ. We all stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. We want to celebrate all of this with communion. This morning, and so I'm going to ask the ushers if they will come forward and 
and we're going to just distribute, we're going to do this very simply, we're going to distribute the bread and distribute the cup, and uh, there will be a song being played, you can sing along as we go, um, but you can partake as, as you receive it, just partake and thank God and praise Christ, and, and then at the right moment, join in singing uh, in Christ alone.